You know, the, so it's a 15-year project, but it's broken down into phases. So they actually mm. look at look at this in a phased approach, and, and they are that's very appealing to a bond investor that can get in on a phase one type investment that's more limited in scope and time and duration, and the return and, and that feels more like a traditional uh, bond type play. You have ground that exists; um, it's now going to be improved. Some of those dollars will go to further environmental outcomes as well, um, but. Take Taking existing ground and improving it. Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators, leaders, and uncommonly high achievers. Today on the show, we've got John Benson. John, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So, John, tell us your company and your project. So, the company is called Lake Restoration Solutions. We were formed to effectuate a project called the Utah Lake Restoration Project here in Utah. So my role as the president of the company, I've been involved for over four and a half years in putting together the vision, the business plan, and the capital to do this project. That's exciting. So for people not from the state, I bet there's a lot of folks that don't realize, you know, how big that lake is and and kind of what's happened to it over the years. Can you give people a little bit of the, of the setting? It's massive. So Utah Lake, you wouldn't think it's Utah being the second driest state that we'd have such a big lake, but Utah Lake is about 150 square mile lake, the third largest lake west of the Mississippi, freshwater lake. And so over the last 150 years, the lake has suffered from human caused nutrient pollution and other damage, and has kind of gotten to a state where it needs, needs intervention, needs help to be recovered. And so we've been working on you know, plans for restoring Utah Lake as a state for over 30 years. And as we looked at this as, as innovators, entrepreneurs, um, and conservationists, like what, what can we do? What, what skills can we bring to the table to help recover this e- ecosystem and to do it in a way that is financially feasible? Yeah. So how long has it been since people like stopped water skiing there and stuff like that? Yeah. Some people still will brave the elements and they'll go ski the scum. That's kind of the, the mantra for those hardcore enthusiasts. A typical day, summer day, you'll get between 10 and 30 boats on Utah Lake. You've got more than a million people that live within a, a mile or within an hour's drive of Utah Lake, but they'll, they'll drive right past Utah Lake and go up to the small mountain reservoirs, which are you know just crowded. And some of them even uh, close their docks by noon because so many people go there. So Utah is a big boating state. People want to recreate, but they're not doing it in Utah Lake because they're, you know, they're getting warnings not to go there and and things like that. So, so that's been going on for really the last 20 years or so is when it's gotten to that level. Well, what I, you know, so we've run a nonprofit for 12 years combating trafficking. And in many ways, it's terrible because in the nonprofit world, it's so hard to attract the finances because if you were going to, if you were going to try and hire the kind of people who are good at raising the money, you would get so criticized because everybody thinks nonprofit should be done for cheap. And it's so tough to get enough of the right people. And uh, if you were to spend the kind of dollars on marketing, that a for-profit company is allowed, you get highly criticized. You know, it's so tough. And so I am such a fan of, can you involve business? And can this be like business for good or nonprofits partnering with business and stuff? Can you talk about the real estate angle that you guys are pursuing or working together on? Yeah, so we consider ourselves a social enterprise. So it is a for-profit entity, but for social good with you know social and environmental factors leading the way in our in our mission for our business but as we looked at different ways to fund the restoration you know for utah lake in particular dredging the lake and then forming what what will look like islands they're they're called dredge containment areas which is kind of a dorky term Um, but islands on the lake with that material is the the core of the restoration plan 
And so as we looked at for how, how do we pay for this? It's a multi-billion dollar effort. We looked at the, the nonprofit angle. We looked at government funding sources and we realized none of that was, was going to be anywhere close to paying for this huge cost. And so somebody suggested, what if you looked at real estate development as a, as a business model to pay for that expense, which was kind of a big breakthrough for us. Uh, we're not developers by background, but as we researched that and, and, and started to collaborate with developers, we learned that that could work very well. And it's a great marriage between uh, bringing development as a business model and conservation together. I mean, typically those things don't blend. It's kind of oil and water. Uh, conservationists battle developers all the time. And so there's been some skepticism, like, is this really about development and doing development in a way that is highly sustainable and beautiful, have these great lakefront communities, but to enable the restoration um, and enhancement activities on Utah Lake to make it, a, a, once again, a pristine ecosystem. It's pretty exciting, pretty innovative breakthrough in this space. Yeah, no kidding. And so for people who are trying to imagine this, my like my crude example, I think I might have got it from from Sean. Uh, was it's almost like those islands out in Dubai, or like like where they're like they're making the world, or they're making the giant palm tree and stuff like that. Is that a good comparison, or where does that analogy break down? Well, it breaks down in a few ways. First of all, we don't we don't want to bring Dubai to Utah. Uh, you know, <laughs> okay. Very ostentatious. Those those islands were built to be flashy, showy. Um, it was to attract people to live there, not not to solve an environmental problem, but they are pretty neat islands. I mean, if you if you've ever had a chance to visit there, I, I've never been, but I've heard that they're really beautiful and incredible. In this case, the, the purpose of the islands, of course, is is to solve an environmental need. But you can look to more domestic examples. There there are several artificial islands in in Miami, for example, actually all over in Florida. The Venetian islands were built over 100 years ago. Interestingly, right around the time of the Spanish flu pandemic. But you have Mission Bay in San Diego. That uh, if you've been to San Diego to SeaWorld, you've been on a dredge project. That that's an artificial island that was used to store dredge material. And so, you know, our, our vision is more of a community fill, something that's more low key that would feel like it would fit and be a natural extension of what, what Utah needs and to, and to address a problem. And in the Wasatch Front, which is kind of where everybody lives, 80% of Utahns live in this kind of small square. It's about five miles by, I don't know, maybe 20 miles long. And that's where 80% of the population lives in this huge state. But there's a huge shortage of land available for development, huge house, housing shortage. And so affordability is becoming a major issue here as people are moving out of California and fleeing to you know, more productive, business-friendly states. So again, using this, this model to solve problems is kind of our mantra. That's fun. So do you have an estimate on, on the total dollars need for the project? Yeah, it's about six and a half billion dollars to complete the project. So that's a big number. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about the plans to get that. We actually have the funding plan in place now. Uh, that took a couple of years. Uh, so first we got the, the state, kind of worked with the state on getting an application in, getting a proposal submitted on kind of here's the general concepts we want to pursue uh, that went through a whole political process and state um, acceptance process. Then it was two years of fundraising. And so we needed an init some initial capital, about $25 million committed for environmental permitting and pre-construction activities. That, that's what we're doing now. We're using those funds and to go through the Army Corps and, and uh, EPA kind of approval process. That's a whole a whole thing, the NEPA process is very thorough and uh, which is good. It prevents bad projects from going through and, and helps people refine their plans. That's where we are today. Once we receive the, the, rec or the, 
the appropriate permit approvals, we have about $6.5 billion committed post-permit in the form of bonding activity and some loans. There's an, an EPA program called WIFIA, which is a watershed or water uh, water infrastructure finance innovation act fund it's a, it's a loan program where they would actually loan to a private company like ours funds that have an environmental purpose for those projects that, that we would then repay um, from the real estate proceeds so it, there's a lot of complexity to the diff different moving parts but getting those parties to the table has been pretty exciting to see them capture the vision of what this could do environmentally and then saying, hey, yeah, this checks the the uh, the boxes we need to on the investment side. So it's exciting that they can get a, a kind of a double bottom line benefit. Yeah. I mean, our, to give a shout out to Lindsay Hadley, our, our common friend that got us connected here. She sent us so much, so many of the best guests on the show over time here. But I remember as she was explaining to it, like I started getting more excited thinking like, well, this could this could be really great. And like you said, it's been talked about for 30 years, but it maybe just didn't have that economic driver. And that's why it was talked about instead of done, right? Yeah, it's a huge breakthrough, right? Conservation has been funded by nonprofit donations and government backing is really the, the sole source for doing, doing good projects for, I mean, for a long time. I mean, that's, that's historically been how it's, how it's done. And so if you can bring an economic driver to the equation, and in this, in this case, it's, you know, development as an activity, as the economic driver with the return uh, for the investors, you can do bigger projects, you can do more good. And, you know, we, we think that's very exciting what that could mean for the future of conservation and the future of development and those things coming closer and closer together. I mean, until now, development has kind of moved more towards low impact development or even zero impact development. We like to use the term restoration development, where now we're going and doing positive impact, positive improvements with that same business model. It's a very exciting breakthrough in both industries. No kidding. So tell us what the six and a half billion gets spent on. So the, the biggest expense on the environmental side is dredging. This is, it's about a billion cubic yards. If you can imagine, you know, 150 square mile lake, we're going about seven feet deeper on average. And so it's seven feet across 150 square miles. That's a lot of material that needs to be moved. So dredging is a majorly expensive remediation impact. And then, and then containing that within the islands, doing that in a way that's structurally sound, that contains the material so they don't seep back into the water. There's a lot that goes into that and forming artificial land with a soft sediment material. It's very expensive, but very, you know, again, the having that opportunity on the back end where that can be used as real estate makes it all work and makes it feasible. So, and this is just my ignorance. How do you, how do you dredge? How do you dredge a giant lake like that? What does that physically look like? So I'm going to use a maybe a poor analogy, but that the layperson understands this was helpful for me. It's kind of like putting a giant vacuum hose to the bottom of the lake. So you're you're removing the lake bed. You're, you're putting this giant hose, for lack of a better term, on the bottom of the lake. It churns up the material and then it into the pipe and moves it to a different area. So you're not you're not draining the lake or anything like that. You're just you're removing it through suction, suction dredging. Um, is a term that some people use and it moves that material. How long is that hose? The pipes can be very, so the, to remove it, you're, you're putting a giant barge, right? I mean, not, not giant, actually, if you looked at it from the shore, it would look like just a boat out on the water. Uh, the barges are actually relatively small, um, but they're next to that, the area where you're dredging, but then you're, you're pumping that material through pipes. that could be a couple of miles to the, the dredge containment area. Wow. 
So those are positioned all throughout the lake. You have various machines and they're, they're getting, you know, sand from over here and clay from another area, gravel, and they, they get an engineered fill at the end, an engineered mix of materials that, that's constructible, compactable. And it, it's pretty fascinating, the engineering that goes into all that. Well, that was actually my next question is once the sediment gets over to where you guys are building the islands, you're saying you mix it with gravels and other things at that point or, or what, what goes yeah. into uh, there's actually, it to stay stable? There's actually a lot of the materials needed in the lake bed itself and just in different areas. So you have sediment, sediment and clay are kind of the, the major composition, but there is sand, there is gravel. We may need to bring some of that in to get the right composition and the right stability. That remains to be seen exactly the mix. But yeah, you mix that into an engineered fill and then it's compaction and, and dewatering of material to get the stability you need. It depends. It can be passive where you just uh, let have uh, materials out baking in the sun and the water uh, evaporates off. You can do active dewatering where you're putting in actual drains. You can even do some pumping in, in different, different areas, different materials. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. But essentially, when you get to dry land and compacted land, that's where the stability comes in. You know, you think about such major projects to improve where we live that don't get taken on because they're not short, because they're not easy, because they're not cheap, right? I'm interested as you think about the process, like what, what do you guys figure it'll take from here to completion? About how many years is that? So we have about a two-year process of environmental evaluations, call it two years, give or take. From there, the, the project is about 15 years of environmental works. So dredging, land formation, restoration of a submerged vegetation and aquatic species. I mean, there's the habitat aspect is actually really fascinating. We don't talk about it enough, um, but think about it about 15 year period of time for restoration and you're about right. Wow. Uh, wh what are some of those habitat things? So in Utah Lake, we've lost submerged vegetation, which used to cover the lake. So that, that vegetation would, would filter the water served as the basis for the food web and anchored the lake bed sediments. So the water was much clearer. So that all of that vegetation has been lost through an introduction of invasive fish species and other activities human caused that wiped that out. So the lake bed today is like a virtual moonscape. If you if you're water skiing and, and you you step, you happen to be in a shallow area, step in, or stand up, you'll seep down up to your calves in kind of this ooze. And it's just lake bed that is un, unconsolidated and not anchored down. So restoring that submerged vegetation brings the food web back, anchors the lake bed, improves water clarity, and, and there's a whole, whole host of other benefits. But that's kind of the, the post-dredging environmental remediation factor that we're most excited about, making the, the, the ecosystem much more like it used to be. So what, yeah, what fish should be there and what fish shouldn't? So we have a ton of European carp were introduced like in the late 1800s as a food source. We used to have uh, cutthroat trout, Bonneville cutthroat trout that were you know, three and four feet long. Those are gone completely. Other fish species that used to be there are also gone. Some of those we may not be able to bring back, but continuing to reduce the carp populations is a goal. Getting the habitat there is kind of our role in this process, ideal habitat for the right fish species. And the state will tell us exactly what they want to introduce and and they'll run that program. We're just there to help provide funding and, and help enable those, those programs to be successful. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested, something like that, that first $25 million in all this environmental studies and permitting to begin with, I'm interested in what those conversations are like when you, you can't guarantee the outcome. You know, 
people have to put out the 25 million and it's, you probably don't have a crystal ball. Hey, it all should work, but you probably can't guarantee it. Or can you? Like any other investment conversation, it's risk versus reward. You know, if you're, if you're used to investing in uh, you know, software startups, this is, this is new. <laughs> if you're used to investing in real estate, this is new. You're not getting land on day one. And so it, it's finding the right type of investor with the mindset of Utah first environmental drivers. A lot of them have personal experiences with Utah Lake and said, Hey, I have some money. I can, I can invest opportunistically into something like this, understanding that there is risk, you know, hoping that if we're successful, this could improve the lake. This could make a, this, what today is a big liability in the state into a great asset for, for, you know, them to enjoy for their grandchildren to enjoy. And that, that's kind of the driver, the emotional driver behind why why invest in something like this. You know, we think the risk is is less than you might see in in some venture capital type scenarios, and even some real estate scenarios have have higher risk than this. But there there are certainly you know permitting and EPA and the, you know three letter acronyms kind of scare away the typical real estate investor who's used to buying land and building you know homes or condos and and kind of being in and out in 18 months or two years this might feel to them like a, a very risky investment and so yeah the, a lot of meetings a lot of discussions and finding kind of the sweet spot with the investors that were like this is the right blend of of risk and reward and and hitting those environmental drivers that matter yeah can you talk a little bit about on, on the other side in the bonds and debt and and i mean 15 year project those are those are probably also different conversations than your typical <laughs> investor you know that so it's 15 year project but it's broken down into phases so they actually mm -hmm. look at look at this in a phased approach and and they are that's very appealing to a bond investor that can get in on a phase one type investment that's more limited in scope and time and duration and the return. And, and that feels more like a traditional uh, bond type play. You have ground that exists. Um, it's now going to be improved. Some of those dollars will go to further environmental outcomes as well. Um, but taking existing ground and improving it, that, that's kind of bread and butter bond investing and so by breaking it down into not just the massive project, but the smaller, more manageable projects is, is what's made that work. Yeah. Had you had any experience in the past securing those kind of bonds? Me personally? Yeah. No, it's being introduced to people through people, right? Yeah. And yeah, I'm interested in what that way. was like. Very interesting. And as we, you know, it's just, it's like anything else where you, when you're talking to people who care about the success of your company or your projects, they may, they may not be able to help you, but they can introduce you to somebody who they know who would be very interesting. And then they introduce you to somebody new. And that networking process has been very beneficial for us. When we met the, the right contacts within Citigroup, who does this type of work, it was a perfect fit. His experience with water projects and municipal bonding and in Utah in particular. And he was like, I, I am the perfect guy for you guys to do this project. Let me tell you why. And, and that was a huge breakthrough for us in helping us kind of round out how we, how to finance this project. That's great. Well, uh, congratulations from never having done it to getting six and a half billion funded. Thank you. Still um, a lot of work to do. Sure. When you think about your success, like you said, people have been talking about this for 30 years and there's people that want to do, you know, that want to do projects that are big, expensive and helpful that don't get them done. What's, what's one of the principles that you feel like you've lived that has helped you get this far? I would say persistence, number one. I mean, just to have to stay at it. And 
I'm trying to turn every no into a, an introduction to somebody else that might be helpful, like we talked about. Just sticking with it, treating every obstacle as an opportunity. What can we learn from that, that meeting that went poorly or didn't get to the right outcome? What, what do we need to change in our business model or business plan or, or otherwise to get the next meeting to a yes? And you, know, you go through hundreds of meetings and you learn a lot. And you, you have to adapt and change. It, you know, our, our plan today isn't the same as the plan we had four or five years ago because we had to learn and we had to make changes. And so you know, being flexible, but also tenacious and, and unrelenting in the effort leads to the possibilities. Yeah, can you, can you talk about that for a minute? Because in many ways, those can be at odds, right? Because if we're too tenacious on, you know, it's like a balance beam. If you fall off the too tenacious side, you may miss the opportunity. And if you fly off, if you fall off the too flexible side, you may not get anywhere because you're always, oh, that's a new way. Let's change everything again. How do you, how do you think about navigating that balance beam? Oh, that's, that's a philosophical question. I'm not sure I can fully answer, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try and tell you what we've learned. You have to consider your audience, right? If you're meeting with the, the number one expert in a certain topic and he tells you you're wrong, that carries more weight than, you know, your neighbor next door who has an opinion. So it's just considering, you know, where the, where the feedback came from, how frequently you hear a certain thing. And when you're getting the same feedback over and over from different sources, you have to reconsider that, Hey, maybe we got something wrong here and you make an adjustment or you do more research and you learn about a change you can make. And so for me, when I say we have to be tenacious, it's tenacious in, in defining your objectives but flexibility in defining the means to achieve those objectives. And if you, as you learn about different methods to, re, to achieving the same objective in a higher way, that's an easy change to make. Where, where you need to be more, more determined, less flexible would be maybe in the object, objective itself. You know, where, you know, for example, if, if you learn that there's a, a shortcut you could take that might, might lead to a, a, better, a better financial outcome, but a worse environmental outcome, you just, you say, we're not willing to compromise on that. The, the environmental objective has to be met. That's too important. And so, I don't know, you, you can't compromise on principles, but you can compromise on, you know, different pathways to achieve the objectives that you've laid out. Well, one thing I hope you don't compromise on is it'd be really good if you guys could put like a, a surf pool, like, you know, like one of those artificial wave pools on the islands. That's, that's just like a personal request. Like the, Kelly, the Kelly Slater surf pool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it all in the works, you know, <laughs> just, just going to put that out there. Um, I'll, I'll say this, we're well aware of the technology and, and very interested in it ourselves. The next question I had was about persistence. When you think hard projects, big projects, there's so many opportunities for disappointment and discouragement. What does it look like for you personally to stick with it? To What are you telling yourself at those times when you get tempted to quit or do something else? Or what does that look like for you? So any big project has opposition. And this project's no different. There are people who don't want to see us, don't want to see us be successful. And, you know, the vocal minority is kind of the, the, the cachet or the, the, you know, the catchphrase that's used to describe some of that. We've seen overwhelming support for the project at large. I won't share the exact figures, but high percentages of, of residents want to see this project happen. They want to see the lake improved, but there is a small percentage that says, leave it alone. And they're very vocal. They're very aggressive in their tactics and approaches. And that, that can be discouraging. You know, I won't, I won't lie to lie about that, but you, you just have to remind yourself, this is worth it. The outcome will be worth it. And there are people who 
may not be as vocal, but they, they are supporting for you. They're rooting for you. And sometimes that circle might feel pretty small. Maybe it's just your family and friends, but going to those who care about you and care about what you're trying to achieve, knowing who your cheerleaders are, I think is important. Get that emotional recharge, huh? Yeah. You just need that from time to time. Yeah. Well, if people want to find out more about this, where's the best place online for them to do that? Our website is imagineutahlake.org. We have all kinds of information there. We're on Facebook as well, Utah Lake Restoration Project, and we're sharing updates all the time. This is a, a very exciting project, and we'd love to have people get involved. I love it. Anything else you want to leave us with? Anything we didn't cover? I think we covered it. Um, just so, so excited. Grateful you had me on the innovation aspects of, of this project and just uh, startups in general, it, it's, it, it's such a, an exhilarating experience to go through and amazing. That I'm glad that you had us on and grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Canada, but my, my dad and my grandparents grew up within just a handful of miles of there. And uh, obviously raising my kids here, I I'm really rooting for you guys. I think it'd be a great thing for everyone here and for all the visitors and I'm glad you're doing it. So thanks for doing that. Thanks so much. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening.